0: Oh Lord, our God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in Your sight. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. I'm going to uh, cut right to the chase. I'm going to jump right into this passage. um, Or rather, I'm going to jump right into uh, the meat of the sermon and say that this morning... Uh, you are going to be challenged um, to examine your life in light of your obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit included this this chapter of the Bible uh, here for us to measure our life and measure our obedience against the people here in this chapter. And although we are focusing on the life of Elisha, in this sermon, he's going to be in the background. Rather, uh, we will see more uh, the actions of Jehoram, Jehoshaphat, and the king of Edom. We will also see the um, combined armies of Israel and Judah and, and Edom as they attack Moab. And against their obedience or lack thereof, we will measure ourselves. But before we can look at this passage, I need to address an error that is very widespread in the church. This is an error that has been in the church since the beginning. It is so widespread, I would be surprised if uh, some here this morning have not fallen prey to this error. And it is no small, inconsequential error. It is an error that will be the difference between eternal life and eternal judgment and damnation. The error that I am uh, addressing is what we tend to call nominal Christianity or carnal Christianity. And it basically goes like this. As long as I believe in God, as long as I believe in Jesus and that He died on the cross for my sins, I'm going to heaven. That is the error when it is the entirety of your Christian profession. There's a lot of truth in this statement, but it's only a partial truth. Believing in Jesus, believing that He died on the cross for your sins, that's only half. The truth, And as J.I. Packer likes to say, a half-truth posing as the whole truth is a complete untruth. So I want you to listen to these verses from the Bible that I'm about to read and compare them with this statement that as long as you believe in Jesus and that He died on the cross for your sins, you'll go to heaven. So the first verse, our first passage is from Matthew chapter 7 verses 21 through 23. Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and do many mighty works in your name? And Jesus says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These are people who are saying, Lord, Lord. These are people who are confessing Jesus. And yet he tells them, I never knew you. John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, Jesus tells us. John 14:23 Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. 1 John chapter 2 verses 3 through 6. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His Word, in Him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. So can you hear the difference between the idea of simply believing in Jesus and that He died on the cross for your sins and these verses that I just read? It's a pretty wide difference Isn't there? Now you might be wondering if these verses I just read are teaching that you can be saved by obeying God's commandments. Of course not. You could never offer enough obedience to be considered righteous in God's sight. You could never be saved by obeying God's commandments perfectly enough. These these verses do not teach that you can be saved by your obedience. So then what are these verses teaching? These verses are teaching that someone who really trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ will be a changed person. And much of the confusion comes in uh, with the definition of the word believe. For instance, I looked at the Weather Channel earlier this week. Weather Channel says there's a 50% chance of rain uh, tomorrow. Oh, that it would be 100%. We need the rain. I actually checked it this morning and it says it's down to 40%. So I might say, I really believe it's going to rain tomorrow. And I might even act on that belief and take an umbrella with me if I plan on being outside for any length of time but I'm not entrusting myself to that belief. When I say I believe it is going to rain tomorrow, I'm simply saying I think it may rain tomorrow, but I'm far from certain. So I'm simply making a mental assertion that I think it may rain. And a lot of my belief is probably driven not by fact, but by my earnest desire to have some raindrops fall on my lawn. Again, this is a far cry from biblical belief because it is a far cry from entrusting myself to that belief. Or let's dig down a little deeper. Let's say that I really believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He died on the cross, and that He rose from the grave. Simply believing those facts, does not save you. Remember what John what James chapter 2 verse 19 says? James says, you believe that there's one God? Good. Even the the demons believe and shudder. James is saying that mental assent to truth is not saving faith. The pastor who discipled me used to say, well, if you believe in Jesus, well, good, you're now qualified to be a demon. There are a lot of professing Christians whose faith is nothing more than mental assent. In other words, to be perfectly blunt, and to be as honest as I can, there are many professing Christians whose faith in Jesus Christ is a false faith. It is a worthless faith. If you think I'm being too hard, go and read the second chapter of, uh, of James and how he pleads through the second half of that chapter with people to make sure that they have a true faith, a saving faith. So then, what is a true faith? Well, true saving faith has four elements. And if all four elements are not there, then it is not a true faith. The first element of saving faith does indeed give mental assent to the truth about Jesus. It gives, in other words, it believes the facts about Jesus. He is the Son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He came uh, to earth. He died on the cross as a substitute for sinners. He rose in glory from the, the dead and He is seated at the right hand of the Father making the intercession for us. And so we are to give mental assent to these truths. But that's not the full content of true saving faith. Secondly, faith, saving faith does not only believe the right things, it also means that you entrust yourself not just to the facts, but you entrust yourself to the person of Jesus Christ. The 17th century Puritans used to speak of trusting in Christ by using the word recumbent, Recumbence. Recumbence means lying back. It means resting or leaning upon an object. Most of you are familiar with recumbent bikes. Maybe some of you have seen someone uh, out or, out and about on their recumbent bike and you take a second look because you see the two wheels and you barely see the person because he's laying down as he's pedaling the bike. Or most of you uh, have... Have seen in 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 your local gym the stationary recumbent bikes. All your weight is reclining as you exercise. When I I used to, well, I still go to the YMCA, but I used to love the recumbent bike. Any bike where you could get into the posture of lying down and exercising—that was the exercise for me then i found out that you don't get burn as much many calories so i have transitioned over to the elliptical but the point is when you come to jesus christ you're resting on him you're reclining on him you're leaning on him completely not just on the facts about him but it's a personal relationship with Him. You are resting upon Him. The third element of saving faith is adherence or cohesion. It means you're going to stick with Christ. When things are going well, you're not going to forget about Him. Or when things are going poorly, you're not going to abandon Him. You're going to adhere to Him stick to Him. You're going to be faithful to Him through thick and thin. There will be times where you'll struggle to trust Him, but you will always find your way back because you love Him and you know that He loves you so much that He went to the cross and died for you. People who have a false faith can put on quite a show They can look very zealous on the outside, but deep in their heart, they know that they do not have a true commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Rather, their truest commitment is to the false trinity of me, myself, and I. And when life gets difficult, they'll abandon their profession of faith. They'll abandon Jesus Christ. 1 John 2.19 speaks of these people who are not willing to adhere to Jesus Christ, who have a false faith. First John 2.19 says, "...they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us." True saving faith sticks with Jesus Christ. And then the fourth element of saving faith is reliance. This gets to the idea of obedience that we read about in those Scripture passages. If you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to rely on His Word. If you love the Lord Jesus Christ and you trust Him, you're going to love obeying Him. What He says will be important to you. I like to use the illustration of a tightrope walker who used to stretch out a cable from building to building and walk across, you know, as people down the, the ground, uh, as he's 40 stories up, you know, they're gazing up and watching him walk across. And uh, so the illustration goes like this. Let's say that this tightrope walker stretched a, a cable across Niagara Falls. And he walked across, and the crowds there to see the falls were gathered, and they were cheering him on, and he walked across, and he walked back. And then he said to the crowd, Who here believes that I can push another human being across Niagara Falls in a wheelbarrow? And the crowd said, You can do it! You can do it! And he says, Who's going to get in the wheelbarrow? If you get in the wheelbarrow with Jesus Christ, if you trust yourself to Him, and He starts pushing you out over Niagara Falls, you are going to rely upon Him. He tells you to lean a little to the left. You're not going to think it's real funny to try and lean a little to the right. You're going to obey His Word. And it's not you who is getting yourself across Niagara Falls. Jesus alone is pushing that wheelbarrow. You are relying completely, wholly, totally upon Him. Your safe passage across is totally in His hands. And so you can only rely on Him, not on yourself. But when He tells you lean a little to the left, you'll lean a little to the left because you've entrusted yourself to His ability to get you across. It is not your obedience that gets you across. It is Jesus and Him alone because you have entrusted yourself to Him. Your willingness to obey Christ reveals the quality of your faith. That's what Jesus means when He says, if you love Me, you will obey Me. Because your obedience reveals the true quality of your faith. Obedience is a consequence of faith. If your faith is resting in Jesus Christ, then it will restlessly seek to obey Him. So here in our passage, we meet with Jehoram. I'm not going to go and, and, and recount uh, blow by blow what's happening here in this passage, but we meet Jehoram. He was partially obedient. He tried to get rid of, rid of the Baal worship that was so prominent in his father's kingdom. Remember Jezebel, his uh, Ahab's father? I'm sorry, Je- 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 Ahab's mother? Um she was greatly into Baal worship. And so Jehoram at least tried to get rid of the Baal worship. But he was unwilling to get rid of the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. So look at verses 2 and 3. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father mother, for he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from it. And Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, created this alternate place of worship up in Bethel and in Dan and fashioned uh, these two golden calves for the people to worship. He was partially obedient. But his partial obedience was unacceptable to God. And then what happens is Moab uh, decides to rebel against Israel. Let's, I thought about throwing a map up on the the screen, and I thought, no, I'm going to we're going to have a little uh, geography lesson. But you are going to be the landmarks. So. Um to understand what's happening. This side of the room is Judah. Now the wall back there would be the separation between Judah and uh and Israel, the northern 10 tribes. The the isle here is the Dead Sea and beyond the isle would be the Jordan River. But the whole isle is the Dead Sea. And um about where uh, Joanne is is sitting would be the um, the Arnon Gorge or the Arnon River. And uh, below that would be Moab. And the Moabites were the descendants of Lot, if you remember from the book of Genesis. And down here in this area would be Edom. The Edomites would be here. And so the Moabites Sorry, you guys are all Moabites this morning. Um, rebelled against Israel and would refuse to give, uh, the king of Israel the, um, the sheep that he required. And so the king of Israel comes down to the king of Judah and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, and says, let's attack Moab. But the, the Dead Sea is here, so they can't get across. If they were to go, and cross the Jordan River and come down the the Arnon River. Uh, the valley there is two miles wide. is very steep. It's very rugged. It's easily defensible. And so the Moabites would be able to repel the Israelites and, um, and, and the Jews as they come across to attack. So, what the king of Israel decides to do is he's going to make an alliance with Edom. And so... Israel, Judah, and Edom are going to come around. They're going to sneak around the pulpit, so to speak, around the the the, the southern part of uh, the Dead Sea, and they're going to sneak through Edom and attack Moab. The problem is, is this whole area is very dry. In fact, you can look on Google Earth and see just how dry it is there, and is the 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 ground is 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 orange because there's just no vegetation. the dirt was red there, which is in keeping with Edom the word Edom means red and so the the dirt is just dry it's, it's red and so Israel, Judah and the king of Moab and the king of Edom come around and they run out of water and they're stuck in the wilderness and they think that they're going to die. They did not consult the Lord. They did not um, uh, think to, to ask if the Lord would want them to attack and which way God would attack would want them attack, to attack. Uh, Jehoshaphat repents, and Jehoshaphat says, is there a prophet of the Lord here? And they call Elisha. So that's where we see Elisha here in our passage. And as they are out in the desert, and they are thinking that they are going to die. The king of Israel says, God brought us out here to kill us. And Elisha gives a prophecy. And he says, no. God is going to deliver Moab into your hand. Even though you did not consult with me, I am going to be gracious to you. I am going to save your, your, your armies from starving and, and uh, from, from dehydration, from lack of water and I am going to give the Moabites into your hand. So what he says is that he's going to cause water to come down and fill the valley where it is so dry and where the, 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 the ground is red, which is important because um, the next morning, sure enough, the water comes, fills the, the, the valley, and the, the, the ground is red, and then the early morning sun... The Moabites, their, their lookouts happen to look and they see down into the valley and they see all this water that God has brought to nourish the armies and to nourish the the horses and, and things like that of the uh, Israel and, and Jewish and Edomite armies. And it looks like blood to them. And they say, God has uh, delivered... Uh, the, the king of Israel and the king of Judah into our hands, let's attack. And so they attacked and um because they thought that the, the Israelites and and uh, Jews and Edomites had turned on each other, but they had not, so they routed them. And here's I'm I'm really am drawing very close to the, the conclusion here. What God said is when I give the Moabites into your hands You are to uh, completely destroy them economically. So he says in verse 19, And you shall attack every fortified city and every choice uh, city and shall fell every good tree and stop up all springs of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. So they were to do this. And sure enough, when when the Israelites and, and Jews and Edomites attacked Moab, they went through and as it says, um, verse 25, "...they overthrew the cities, and on every good piece of land, every man threw a stone until it was covered. They ruined the, the fields. And then they stopped up every spring of water, felled all the good trees, till only its stones were left in kir Harisheth, and the slingers surrounded and attacked it." And then... When the king of Moab saw that battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Adam, but they could not. Then he took his oldest son who was to reign in his place, offered him for a burnt offering on the wall, and there came great wrath against Israel, and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. God had promised that they would overthrow Moab, and He had given them a promise, you will completely overthrow them, but you must obey Me. You must stop up every stream. You must cover every good field with rocks, cut down every tree, and, um, and attack and overcome every city. For 95% of what God commanded them to do, they were obedient. But that last city, because the king of Moab sacrificed his son and the people uh, rallied around the king of Moab, it says, and there came great wrath against Israel. And so Israel was withdrew. In other words, they were disobedient. They were obedient to 95%. But ultimately, they were disobedient, and then the, the the chapter ends there without comment, and there was no comment needed, because what this passage was saying was that their hearts were their disobedience, their failure to seek to be obedient to God, and stick to Him when things got tough revealed that their hearts were never near God. Just like the people in Matthew seven twenty-one through 23 Lord, Lord, look at all these good things we did. Jesus says, depart from Me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. God requires full obedience of us. Who of us can ever be fully obedient? None. And even in our best efforts, we still have pride. Even in our best efforts, we still are self-centered. The the, the Puritans used to talk about having to repent of their repentance. But, if you love the Lord Jesus, if you are trusting in Him, resting, reclining in Him, if you are sticking with Him because you love Him, if you are relying upon Him and wanting to obey His Word, it will break your heart when you don't. The Israelites, it didn't break their heart that they disobeyed God. They went home in disobedience. And so I want to call you, if Jesus Christ, He's on the edge of your life. If obedience to Him is not that important, if obedience is an optional aspect of your Christian life, I call you to repent. I call you to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. The great and gracious thing about our Lord Jesus Christ is He stands with His arms open to receive all who come to Him. So come to Him now. Come to Him weeping over your disobedience. Come to Him wanting Him to be your all in all because He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is our Savior. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we have opened up this passage. We Measure ourselves against Jehoram. He did one or two things right, but his heart was far from You. The Israelites did many things right. They were armed with Your promise. And they were um, ordered by Your command. But at the end, Lord... They gave up and went home. Their going out showed that they really did not belong to You. Lord, I pray that if there are any here who do not really belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, who are nominal in their faith, who are carnal in their Christianity, Lord, break their hearts. And Lord, because we are all sinners and we fall so far short, continually break our hearts. Lord, I pray that repentance would be very precious to You because You have promised to always um, heal the brokenhearted. You have always, you've, you've promised to always lift up those who are cast down. So do that, Lord, by Your grace in all of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.